Welcome to the Blessed Sacrament Parish Community Podcast, where our mission is to help everyone recognize and experience the presence of God. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Blessed Sacrament Parish Community Podcast. My name is Kristen Russell, and today we are, we're going to take a trip down memory lane. Um, this month, uh, we're remembering Bishop Ken Utner, who was our bishop here in the Diocese of Saginaw, and we just finished our Synod listening sessions. And one name that came up quite a bit in our listening sessions was the name Bishop Ken. And so I thought it was appropriate to bring in two people who know, who knew and loved Bishop Ken and worked with him and have great stories about him to continue to share his memory and legacy. So I am joined by Leona Jones, who is the director of The Little Books, and Father Rob Howe, who obviously is our pastor here at Blessed Sacrament, and they're here to share some stories um, about Bishop Ken. So thank you both for being here. I'm excited to have this conversation. Thank you. I thought we would just begin by maybe sharing any stories, or what was it like for you to know Bishop Ken, or how did you know Bishop Ken? How did you work with him? Yeah, Leona, why don't you tell us when you started working with him, because that would have been a probably a pretty interesting time for you and for him. It was a very interesting time. I always said that it was the work of the Holy Spirit because I wasn't looking for a job at the time. And um, it just happened that after a meeting uh, in November, uh, Len Molesky said, how would you like to be the bishop's secretary? I said, oh, Len, that would be like a dream came to come true. But I didn't see how that was possible. He says, well, you think about it. You know, so next morning we we talked and I took the job. You know, it was just like that. That was totally the work of the Holy Spirit. I had not met Bishop Ken at that time, although I had seen him way across the room at a workshop he gave for parish council members just within that previous year. So um, I started on November 20th, and he was installed on November 24th, and I didn't meet him till after that. It was very interesting. Yeah, so what was your first impression of Bishop Ken when you actually did meet him? (laughs) Totally, I was totally impressed. You know, yeah, we, we, um, we just had our first meeting, and uh, we're off from then. You know, yeah. One of the things that I always thought was the best about Ken and how his approach to life was is you saw him as a normal person, and some bishops might consider that an insult, but he didn't, and you could have a conversation with him about one of the deepest spiritual things in your life. And then you could talk to him about the Tiger game the night before. And he was equally adept at both of those conversations, which for me, especially early on as a seminarian, is I think we all get to a point where we don't feel like we maybe fit in because I've never found myself to be particularly pious. I pray, but I'm not monk-like. And so I had a lot of doubts. And in seeing him and seeing how he could relate to people, I all of a sudden felt like, okay, maybe I can do this. I don't have to be monkish to be a person of faith that can share that with other people. And that was the gift he gave to me right off the bat. Awesome. And now, Father Rob, did you know of Bishop Ken before you became? Well, I would have met him early on in college. He would come out to the parishes. And I, I, remember, I remember him walking around with his pipe at a parish function, smoking his pipe, which I thought was kind of interesting right off the bat. Um, But he was easily relatable. And I hate to say this because I don't want to hurt anybody else's feelings, but he's still the only 
person I ever heard preach that spoke directly to my heart virtually every time he talked. I hear things that I find interesting. I hear things that I can reflect upon and, and take to my life, but he spoke directly to my heart, and that, that doesn't come along very often. The thing about Bishop Kenneth is he always treated everybody the same. It doesn't matter whether you were a bishop or whether you were a, a the janitor or, or whatever. Everybody was treated with dignity and, and was special. And there were people all over the diocese that thought they were his best friend, like the little old lady in Chesney that made him pickles every year, or the first grader up at Port Austin that wrote him a letter every single year, and he eventually um, witnessed her marriage. You know, and it was everybody was special to him. They felt that they were special to him. Absolutely. I mean, that's one of my main memories of Bishop Ken. I went to St. Bridget, uh, and I remember being over in the sacristy before school mass with him because I was cantering or something. I don't remember what I was doing, but I was over there. And he took off his zucchetto and he held it out to, there's like five of us. He said, what color is this? And so, I mean, we're all in elementary school, so we're like pink. And he said, that's nah, not pink. So then we're having a conversation about, well, what color is it? And we settled on magenta. And I just remember him saying, magenta. <laughs> like he said it and I said, I, he's like, I like that word, magenta. And like, I, I totally understand, you know, you felt important to him. You felt like he actually cared about what you had to offer. And we were like, we were just in elementary school. And here we decided what color that was for him. And he, it's still one of my fondest memories of, of Bishop Ken and, when people mention his name, that's immediately what I think. Magenta. He always had a good time. I mean, whether it was <laughs> playing handball or playing golf or playing gin rummy uh, or... Well, he wasn't at all competitive, though. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. He hated to lose, you know. <laughs> One of the funniest stories I remember, and I wasn't even there, was at an NPM convention. And... Um, it was one of the early ones, and uh, Father Lucian Des was there, and uh, Glory Wyman, who was introducing liturgical dance. And they were at a gathering at the end of the day, you know, and, and um, Gloria wanted Bishop Ken to dance. And he said, no, he didn't dance, you know. So, <laughs> And she kept after him and kept after him and kept him. And he finally got out on the dance floor. And uh, everybody from Saginaw was there and knew what he was doing. He was wiggling his leg. Well, finally, the leg went flying across the dance floor. <laughs> <laughs> and she was so embarrassed, but he didn't have to dance after that. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, I mean, this, the love of life. I mean, that's one of the things when I hear people talk about Bishop Ken, like he loved life so much. Um, can someone give us a little biographical information about Bishop Ken? Well, he was born on Belle Isle, you know, and his, his dad managed the, you know, the, the boat uh, rentals. And uh, so... There were paddle boats on the on the, that island, and and they would swim. And, and uh, he had a big family. He went to St. Charles School, and when he went to the seminary, I mean, he had this uh, congenital defect of his leg, you know, so it was easily um, it, it was shorter than the other one, and and it was easily broken. And finally, the doctor said the best thing is to cut it off. So they did. And I think at that time wasn't an impediment to, mm -hmm. to ordination if you had a prosthesis. So he had to have a, a meeting with, with the cardinal, and uh, uh, he tells a story about he had ice pack on his knee because it was still healing, and 
And uh, this interview went longer than he expected, so pretty soon the ice is melting into this. But uh, but he was, you know, okay. I mean, he got the, the release to be ordained, and, and uh, he never let it stop him. He, he did, did everything, you know. He, was, he kept close contact with all his St. Charles High School people for years and years and years, you know. He was, he was the leader of the pack. <laughs> he was amazing in that he traveled alone. He didn't have an entourage that went with him. He didn't have a, um, an MC that would travel with him. And he would jump into all kinds of liturgies at all kinds of parishes. But the one I want to talk about a little bit is my diaconate ordination, which he flew out to California um, to do. And, of course, he always was kind of... Uh, burning the candle at both ends. And so he was flying out the day of my diaconate ordinate that morning. It was going to be at the 5 o'clock Mass at St. Jerome Parish in El Cerrito, California, where I had worked while I was in school there. And um, my folks had flown out for it. Our, our director of seminarians, Father Tom Moore, was there as well. And I got a call from Ken about 10.30 in the morning saying that um, he was just getting into O'Hare the weather was bad because it was late February, and so there might be a slight delay, but he will get there. Well, as would have it, he called to say they were leaving O'Hare, and I want to say, if my memory is correct, it was, it was between 1 and 2 o'clock in the afternoon when they were leaving O'Hare to fly into Oakland, California, which is cutting it pretty darn close. Well... The pastor who I lived with there, um, Father Don Osuna, said, well, we've got to start 5 o'clock Mass. We can't, can't wait. So the, the uh, gathering song began, the music started, and you literally heard tires screeching as his ride dropped him off at the doors of the church. He threw on his vestments, and we processed down the aisle. I never got to say even a word to him beforehand. And ordinations are slightly complex, and there's different things, and he didn't miss a beat. And the people there were wowed by his homily and probably still talk about it, those that can remember. My parents were sweating bullets. Um, I was a tad nervous, but it all went just fine. So that was, it was pretty impressive the way he could just jump right in and do what he needed to do. Would you say that that was indicative of his ministry as a pastor and as a bishop, being able to adapt to any situation? Sure. Didn't get flustered too much. Um, Always knew it was the prayer that was important, and he'd get there and get it get it happening right. His talk about uh, homilies was always, whatever you say, does it help? And do the people remember? You know, and uh, that there are many of the homilies that he gave for my children's baptisms or or weddings or whatever. I can remember them, you know. So I think the memory helps, you know. Mm-hmm. You guys worked with him as a bishop. What was he? What was he like as a bishop? How would you describe? Um, how would you describe how he embraced that that role? It's hard to quite articulate this feeling, but anybody that's been involved in the church for more than ten minutes knows that there are some aspects of the church can come across as harsh and cold, even. And it always felt like he was the one that stood between us and that harshness. He was the one that could, in very simple terms, explain to us the depth of God's love and how the church 
wanted all to be a part and wanted all to know they were special children of God. And the institution itself doesn't always lend itself to that kind of feeling. And he was the one that stood there to make sure that that was known. I think everything he did was revolved around that. What people don't realize is he was very, very organized. Uh, uh, from day one, you know, I said, well, this is how we're going to do it, you know, and and um, he wouldn't touch yesterday's mail till or today's mail till he had looked at yesterday's mail. And uh, uh, he was good at. Well, he started every day very early with prayer. That was the beginning. And then after prayer, he might might go down and play handball or something, you know. But um, he delegated very well. I mean, it wasn't long before I knew I could make appointments. I didn't have to check with them, you know, if if there was something that a parish wanted. And the day was free. I could I could set it up. I didn't have to ask him. Uh, it was it was he was very trusting, you know, and um, that made our our job very easily. Even like assignment letters for priests are, are they're kind of a formal affair, giving you your pastoral assignment. Yet I never got one from him that didn't have a little note scribbled in the margin about just something in life. Good luck with hunting season this year continue to pray for the lions, something like that. He would always write me a little, scribble a little note in the corner to let you know it wasn't just a form for him. He was, he and was taking it seriously. when Priest died, you know, I could start the letter for him, and then he would always add, uh, you know, this special paragraph about something special about the priest. And, and he would send out a special or a personal letter to every single priest in the diocese when, when one of their brothers died. And I had people tell him after tell me afterwards they would just wait to see what he would say in those letters, you know. Seems like he really he knew his people. That's, yes, that's yes. the mm-hmm. feeling I'm getting mm-hmm. listening to you guys tell stories. And I think that's very apparent and even listening to people talk about him today. There there was an aspect of his personality though that I I wish I had and I don't. And that was he was very self-contained. While he always offered himself to the church and to his people freely, he didn't need anything. And I know it's because of the prayer part. I mean, he had a special relationship with God and he wasn't needy. Like most of us, he would even talk about, if you walk out of church after you're done with Mass and expect people to compliment you on your preaching, you're doing the wrong thing. Don't look for that. And he didn't need it. He didn't need that kind of stuff. And I, very rare people have I ever met that can do that. But he wasn't needy in any aspect. And he was fun, you know. Um, we had so many things at the diocese that that built, you know, relationships. You know, we had the Miss Manners class every once in a while. He would he would give us, you know, tips on how to how to hold our spoon or how to pass the salt and pepper, things like that, you know. And we have the Red Robin contest every year. Who would see the be the first one to see a robin in the spring from the office windows between certain hours? And everybody would bet, you know, and, and uh, other things like that. It's just, just always building community. In, in, uh, it was fun. It was fun to work at the diocese at that time. It was a fun place to go to, too. I looked forward to walking in the door because you knew you were going to have some nice conversation, find people that were happy at their at their jobs. I this is one of his stories about things around the chancery offices that I like, and I actually confirmed it about a month ago with the individual who was involved. I was sitting at a tavern in Bay City, having a beer on my day off, and an individual walked in, and I, I said, "I think that's Judge Alston, who is a uh, 
circuit court judge, I believe, in Bay City. And so I actually walked up to him and asked him about this because I remember hearing that Ken had an office door decorating contest. And he set himself up to win it because Judge Alston is blind. And so Ken went out of his way to have cotton balls and all kinds of texture to his door that was decorated. So when the judge came around, if it was flat, he didn't notice anything special. But, oh, there's all this relief as he felt the door. So he won the contest. And I asked Judge Alston, I said, did that really? He said, yep, that happened. (laughs) So I thought that was pretty good. You haven't heard the famous story about the door that he stole. The the first year he did the door decorating contest, uh, one of one of the staff members had a beautiful door. So the night before the judging, uh, Bishop Ken took her door and put it on his, and then he won the contest. <laughs> so then at the Christmas party, they they had um, the local sheriff come in and, and arrest him, put handcuffs on him, <laughs> and we have a picture of that yet. Really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's. He was so quick with his humor, too. I, one, of, one of my favorite stories also happened is the, uh, the director of youth ministry at the time at the diocese, Peggy McCourtney, walked into his office because he was known to smoke a pipe or a cigar occasionally in his office and walked up to him and said, Bishop, some of us have been having a discussion. We think we'd like to make this a smoke-free workplace. And he looked at her and nodded his head and he said, that sounds like a great idea, but we might as well start one at a time. Let's make it a workplace first. <laughs> Which I love that story. And she walked away sad. So what I'm hearing is even though Bishop, same like same fun loving guy as what it sounds like growing up, um, is it I know it's true, but does anyone have any stories about him? Because I he sold the bishop's home and lived with lived in the rectories with the priests. Anyone have any fun con- fun stories about that. Well, I know in this very rectory at Blessed Sacrament, he lived here when Father Tom Sutton was pastor, and Tom had two associates at the time, Father Dave Parsh and Father Lauren Kalinowski. And um, Ken had to share a bathroom with Lauren. And evidently, Lauren was a counterspace hog. So Ken called a meeting for all of them to discuss the the uh, bathroom situation. I guess it didn't go over real well for him at that time. But he actually he only stayed with me one night in in my, in my time when I was pastor at St. Vincent de Paul in Shepherd, and um, it was a really an interesting evening. We we sat and had a glass of scotch and just did a little talking. But he was not uh, mainly because he didn't grow up with. He was not a, a pet kind of person. And I had my Labrador Retriever at the time. And he, was, he accepted your home however you kept it. But my Labrador Retriever, who wasn't always super close to other people that she didn't know, she walked in, climbed up on the couch next to him, and laid her head on his lap. And just the look on his face was priceless. And he patted her on the head, and then she walked away. And you could tell he was relieved. But just that, it was it, it just a funny moment to watch that happen. Well, when he started living among, you know, he said the best way to get to know the, the priests is to, to sit at night and watch the the, the ball game and, and have a glass of beer. And, he, and he's, he always appreciated that relationship with his priests. That was very important to him. And, and since he was moving from place to place, he didn't have very many possessions. What he had uh, that wasn't in his office fit in the trunk of his car. So if someone gave him a, gave him a sweater, he would give one away. And uh, 
no one knew the uh, the amount of um, charity work that he did because he did it, you know, nobody nobody knew about. It. So when he would talk around the country, you know, they would always give him a stipend, and so he would take out his travel expenses, his air, airline. He would put the rest in a bishop's charity fund, and he gave it all away, you know, to people that weren't covered by uh, the diocesan budget. So um, when he when he died, we heard a lot of stories about women who were given a car when they came out of prison so they could get a job. And nobody knew that he was doing that, you know. So it was just amazing how, how kind and generous he was. He, just listening to these stories, I, I go back to Pope Francis saying, you know, pastors have to have the smell of their sheep. And it seems like even as a bishop, Bishop Ken wanted to have the smell of his sheep, wanted to be around his flock, wanted just to know his his pastors, you know, the people in the diocese. And that just, I've heard stories like that, but, you know, just to hear you guys share them, it it really makes it come true. Probably the most special one for me was um, back in um, 1998-99. My dad died in March of 99, but in that fall of that previous year, September-October, my dad lost his leg due to diabetes. And at, when it was healed, he got a prosthetic leg. And my dad said he, it hurt. He couldn't walk on it. And my mother was frustrated with him. I was frustrated. We thought he just wasn't pushing himself hard enough. And I called up Ken and I said, if you have time one day, can you call my dad and just talk to him a little bit about what, what he needs to know? Knowing that his days were full. He called my dad and talked to him for two hours about everything. And in their discussion, he said, you got the wrong leg. He said, you need one of the old-fashioned kind like I've got. And he explained to him what to tell the person that made the artificial leg what, what he needed. He got a new one and walked around. You'd never know he lost his leg after that. And the last, I mean, that would have been the last couple months of his life, he was back to being old dad again and died a happy man. But it... You know, to take two hours out of his day to talk to my dad about that. I just, I will never forget that. Again, having the having the, the heart of a servant, that's the other thing that kind of comes out when talking about, you know, Bishop Ken is that he he loved to serve. And that two hours probably didn't even feel like two hours to him. And just loved to be be around people and help people. And so knowing, you know, knowing that he is obviously a servant leader in in the way he does his ministry, I admire him. I mean, as an adult, I admired him as a child because I, he made me feel special. But as an adult and now kind of having a background in theology, I appreciate his mind as well. A man was a genius, it seems like, when it oh, came yes. to, you know, certain topics. And so... How would you describe him as a leader in, you know, catechesis or a leader in the sharing the faith? Well, just a quick example. Going to school at Jesuit School of Theology in Berkeley, both Patrick and Koyak, who's pastor in Frankenmuth, and I had this experience. You walked into a room among the Jesuits of the United States who were going there to, to prepare for their Masters of Divinity, smartest priests in the country. We're feeling a little sheepish being around them even. And the moment they knew we were from Saginaw, we were like superstars. We had a national reputation that wherever you went in the church, 
people say, oh my God, you're from Saginaw. And it was because of him. And even so much so that years later, I was on vacation with friends and we did a motorcycle trip and we stored our, our motorcycle trailer at a parish in Boulder, um, Nevada. Walked in the door and the little books were sitting on the table because it was in the Easter season. And the pastor found out that I was from Saginaw and he could not say enough good and gratitude about Ken and his speaking up about what really matters in the church. We were, we were known because of him. And it wasn't because he was somebody that liked to be out in the media and get a lot of attention. It was because the words he spoke were truth. Uh, it reminded me of the stories of Jesus. He spoke with truth, not like the scribes and the Pharisees. With authority, not like the scribes and the Pharisees. And what's the authority? The authority is the words of God that were written in his heart. In 1995, he wanted to bring back the practices of prayer, almsgiving, and, and fasting to the church to, to Lent. And so he had this committee that, that uh, met, and they would make uh, had a focus on prayer first, and then uh, almsgiving, and then fasting. But he, that's, I think that was when he started this, the Seasons publications, which were mm. so informative and, and uh, just a wealth of knowledge in them. Well, then, when he, then it, afterwards, um, he was wondering what to do for the next Lent, and, and somebody suggested um, the, the Daily Reflection book, you know, and that put the seed uh, in his mind, and that's where the little book started. But, um, and so he started out just for our diocese, but they, they heard about it in Detroit, so we were bombarded with calls from individuals that wanted to buy the books. And said, so the next year we figured there has to be a better way of doing this. And that's how little books took off, you know. Wow. I remember when I went to grad school in Pennsylvania, I uh, went to Mass, I think it was like the first weekend in Advent, and they're sitting on the, the stack, they're selling little books. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, they're like, do you need one? I said, oh, no, my mom sent me one. I'm from the Diocese <laughs> of Saginaw. Yeah. So, yeah, it is it is amazing how six minutes a day and just even even now we get compliments on, you know, now that we're doing the audio book um, with, you know, people people just appreciate that. And they some people aren't maybe necessarily visual learners, but auditory. So it's just it's great to see that legacy continue on millions of copies out there millions of copies so let's talk a little bit about just some of his teachings that he has and um one of the things that we've been focusing on with this podcast in particular this year is the voices of women and how women deserve a place at the table as well and so what was bishop ken's approach to you know, empowering women and just, you know, the women's role in the church? Well, he, he was very forward-thinking, I think. Uh, he um, placed a lot of, of women, whether they be layperson or religious, as, as pastoral administrators of parishes. And uh, uh, the result was that those parishes grew and just became so vital um, and he even placed Sister Honora Rems as a pastor of the cathedral. And that parish family grew as a result. I mean, they, 
they did just such marvelous work, and and uh, and I miss that. And then she, uh, he empowered them to um, preach when it was allowed, and. Um, I've had priests tell me that it was nice to sit back and be fed for a change without by hearing a, someone else. A doubt. So there was a, we um, we had good experience with when women leading parishes in the diocese, and I miss that. Yeah. And they were respected for their intelligence and their their insights were valued, and I think that's the biggest part of it. Is there wasn't a clerical hierarchy that I'm the priest, I know more than you. Um, I think of his theologian, Sister Liz Picken. Yes, Sister Liz. Next to him was probably the second smartest person I've ever met. And uh, her counsel was highly valued. It's good. We need more. We we need a return to that. Not just, I mean, just in the the church as a whole, you know, the, the value of you know, we women, we bring something to the table as well. And it's not just the meal you're being served. <laughs> so um, if you, we're, we're going to start kind of wrapping it up, but I have, so I have two more questions for you. The first is if you could sum up Bishop Ken, his ministry, who he is in a sentence, how would you, how would you sum him up for maybe someone who's never experienced Bishop Ken? Well, he was, um, he always said that you should be um, a real human being, you know. Uh, he, he just was so full of life and cared about everybody. And it didn't matter whether it was working on a homily or playing a game or whatever. He put him, his whole self into it, you know. Um, I just have never seen anybody like that that could do everything so well, you know. And his words were so important to people um, because he cared about them. I think it's on the same track. It's the ability to relate to him. Um, I don't mean on an intellectual level because he blows me out of the water when it comes to that. But that I could have seen him be one of my friend's fathers. He had that type of relatability that oftentimes we as priests don't give that impression to people. And he was never standoffish. If you went up to him and you didn't have a deep theological vocabulary, he could relate to you and he could talk to you and you would understand God's love from the conversation. A man who, a man who it seems like everyone wanted to be around. So my final question is, I know there's great stories out there. Any favorite memories or embarrassing stories um, with Bishop Ken that you guys would want to share? Two quick ones. The first one was in the Holy Land when on that trip, that would have been in the fall of 1999, we were going, we were on... on the Temple Mount going into the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And in order to enter a mosque, you have to remove your shoes. And a couple of us looked down and noticed that he had two different kinds of socks on. He had a blue sock and a black sock. And we said, hey, Ken, you got two different socks on. And without missing a beat, he said, well, I have two different kinds of feet, too. And, <laughs> and that was that. 
And the other is the only time I ever saw him mad at me. And uh, he was mad. He had set up, when he first came to the diocese, a golf match between the priests of Detroit and the priests of Saginaw. And it was a grudge match. Uh, it was very competitive. Needless to say, I didn't make the team very often. But on one particular year, we were I was playing, and we were playing up at Garland up in Lewiston. And I was with Father Chet Polarski. He and I were the two tallest priests in the diocese, so I think they put us together. And was behind Ken, and I forget who his partner was, but they played so slowly. And I, I hate slow golf, and it was tedious. And when you're playing with an 80-year-old who thinks they're playing too slow, <laughs> they're playing slow. Well, that evening we were in the dining room. They had a buffet set up for us, and I was behind Ken. And he was lamenting the fact that they were so close to winning, they lost by one stroke. And I'm made the comment, which I shouldn't have, well, perhaps if you just slowed down a little bit, you would have played better. He spun around and just, I got the worst look I have ever gotten from anybody about anything. And I knew to shut my mouth and never say anything about his golf game again. Um, so that's my other one. That's surprising to me because uh, one of the things about Bishop Ken was that he really turned the other cheek. I never saw him return, you know, um, any angry statement. I don't know how he did it, you know, because pe people at times were very critical of of his opinions, and uh, he never gave it back. He, he always just showed them love in the love of God, and that I mean, honestly, that's the memories I have. You just kind of, you know, you know how people give off that energy? He always gave off that energy of like, I'm just so happy you are here and I'm happy to be with you. Oh, so that, that's wonderful. So Leona, do you have any, um, I mean, you worked very closely with him. I'm sure you have a million embarrassing stories for Bishop Ken, um, but you know, we'll, we'll, we'll keep it, we'll keep it light, but do you have any favorite memories or funny stories? Um, there's only one funny story that he told one. Because he would went around the diocese, um, saying, you know, having school masses, and he would often arrive at the parish um, in his in his hockey clothes because he'd had hockey practice mm -hmm. and have to rush through a a shower before he had mass. But but when he at the end of mass, uh, he would always call up the you know the first and second graders that hadn't made their first communion yet for a special blessing. And and uh, this one parish, the little girl was next to him. She says, "Don't mess up my hair." <laughs> And he told that story over and over because it was so funny. Oh, funny. <laughs> oh that's wonderful. I mean, and just, I, again, I just keep going back to how unflappable he, he seemed to be. Um, again, at another school mass, he, I remember he, we did the gospel acclamation and he stood up and he walked down in front of the altar platform and went right into his homily gave his homily, wonderful homily, went back up, sat down in the presider's chair. And so we're all kind of looking at each other like, okay. And then he stood back up and he said, well, that homily would probably make more sense if you knew what the gospel was. And so then he you know, gave the gospel and he had a good, he laughed about it. And it just, it, again, it goes back to show just how human he was. But you know what? It's okay if you make mistakes. God's going to 
God's going to take care of it and everything's going to be okay. So that's definitely something that I um, carry with me, you know, those good memories from from that time. Well, when um, it was only about a year in, into his time in Saginaw and uh, the education office had set up a talk that he was supposed to give to teenagers, you know, in, in the Nouvelle Cap, uh, the, the gym. And he thought it was just going to be a local talk, you know, so he went down there and the place was packed. Mm-hmm. Kids had come from all over the diocese. They'd take buses. And so he wasn't prepared for that. He went back to his office and within five minutes he was back down there, gave a fantastic talk. They recorded it and I saw it. How did he come up with that in, in, the, in a few minutes' time from what he had planned on, you know, it, it was it was a wonderful talk to teenagers. You know, he also did a a Catholic update on the poor, and most parishes around the country have seen Catholic update, and the one he did on the poor is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. So it's good to know that his legacy lives on. As I'm listening to your stories, as I and taking from what I know about my own history with Bishop Ken, we've got a a young church who I think is very passionate about the same things that that Bishop Ken was passionate about. What recommendations would you have, you know, for the young church to dive into, you know, his teachings or, you know, what resources are available um, about Bishop Ken or any books or writings? We heard the Catholic update, but is there anything for you know, like the young church, I'm thinking high school and young adults, college students, to dive into his teachings and his understanding of what the church looks like? Well, the book My Name is Ken has a lot of wonderful homilies on it, and they really touch life. And um, they're geared to, I think, the ordinary Catholic. Practical Prophet has some t- wonderful articles too and they're not just homilies they're articles that he wrote um and they would certainly i think be something that that young adults could relate to yeah i just think that they his legacy would be inspiring and so i will i will find the links to those books and i will include them in the description of the podcast so anyone who's interested in checking them out they will be available well as i'm looking here amazon has the practical profit Available for 11 bucks. There is My Name is Ken. They offer that through Kindle. That doesn't appear to be a, a paper copy of that. Of course, the little books are on there as well. And then for anybody that ever ever has to preach, Preaching Better by Ken Huntner is also on there, which I think they ought to use as a textbook in seminaries. Excellent. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for to both of you for coming in and sharing some memories and stories about Bishop Ken as, you know, we remember his legacy in the diocese. And again, during the synod listening sessions, his name came up so often. And I think that his legacy is continuing. And I hope that uh, his legacy can continue to inspire, especially the young church who is, who are passionate. They're a passionate group of young people They're passionate about social justice, about the poor, about seeing more meaningful roles for women in the church and inclusivity and welcoming. So um, I just want to say thank you and know that, you know, through your sharing of stories, Bishop Ken's legacy is, is continuing on. 
And everybody needs to know that if you ever pray the little books, which most people do, Leona's the one that's responsible for making sure that happens every single year. It's a gigantic operation, and it's pretty much all in her head with a lot of help from, from some pretty good workers, too. Yes, I have a great crew. Well, thank you, Leona, for continuing that beautiful ministry of the little books and continuing to inspire people um, with that six minutes a day of prayer. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We hope you're inspired by these stories of Bishop Ken. And again, I'll include some links to books if you're more if you're curious about um, my name is Ken or a Practical Prophet. You can find those in the description. Thank you for listening, and have a great day. 